When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms of Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms of preteens, teens, and young adults. My mission is to first and foremost support and encourage you, mom, so that you can live well and reclaim your life. Two, the show will help you have the best possible relationships with your teens so that you can communicate, motivate, and guide them effectively and actually enjoy them. And third, I will bring you top-notch guests who will share the newest in adolescent research and trends so you can be prepared and aware of what your teens are facing today. Always you will leave each episode armed with practical parenting tips. Welcome back everyone to the 215th episode of Power Your Parenting Moms and Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. I know many of you listening have freshmen who are about to come home from college for the summer. And I know you have lots of questions after they've been gone on their own for a year. How does this very independent teen settle back into our home routine and rules after they've had complete freedom in college? It's a thing. Plus, I know many of you have seniors that are about to graduate and you're feeling the pressure of how to make the most of this time and worrying about what you need to do. So if you have a senior about to leave or college students about to come home, I'd love to answer your questions on my podcast on May 8th. So I would need your questions now. So just email me at Colleen at DialDownTheDrama.com. And Colleen has two L's and two E's. One thing that you can do in the meantime, you can order my newest book, Dial Up the Dream, Make Your Daughter's Journey to Adulthood the Best for Both of You. It is filled with lots and lots of real, real advice and is helpful in setting your expectations. You can buy Dial Up the Dream anywhere. And if you are a mom on the go, you can order it on Audible. And if you like to underline, then you can order a physical copy of Dial Up the Dream. If you're wondering what to give your friend who is a senior or college mom, it's perfect and really a helpful book. Today, I bring an expert to talk about the current college admissions process and how you can prepare way before your teen is a junior in high school. Sam Hassel holds a bachelor's degree from the University of Southern California and is a published research scientist, having spent four years in psychology and neuroscience research at Columbia University. In his research, he investigated topics such as vicarious emotion processing, the role of mindset in influencing various domains from physical performance to mental experience, and the effects of misinformation. Building upon his experiences in academia, as well as over a decade in educational services, Sam spearheaded the Great Minds Advising Program, a premium college consulting service at Westchester Prep where he is also currently an owner. 
His college advising team leverages cutting-edge strategy and insight into the college review process while helping students intricately craft the intellectual depth, niches, and admission stories that set them apart at even the most elite colleges. For the most recent 2022-23 application cycle, 100% of the Great Minds advising team's students applied early decision and were accepted. Over the past three years, Sam and his team students have earned admission to Columbia, Yale, Stanford, Penn, Duke, Dartmouth, Vanderbilt, WashU, UC Berkeley, and many other top institutions, gained admission to the Ivy League at a rate of 11 times the national average and earned over $1 million in merit scholarships. So welcome, Sam Hassel. Hi. I'm glad that you're here today. Can you tell the moms listening a little bit about who you are and how you got interested in college admissions? Sure. So I am an owner of Westchester Prep, which is a boutique tutoring, test prep, and college advising company in Westchester, New York. So right above New York City and the suburbs. My background is in initially psychology and neuroscience. So I have a lot of experience coming from academia, working with professors and university research. And I think a lot of the backgrounds that I bring to the process, really from the research paradigm, is very similar to what it takes students to you know, really send out in the admissions process. So in research, you're often trying to assemble sort of a story of what this experiment is about, what your research is about, what studies you've done in the past, and what experiments what studies are going to do in the future, how it sort of all fits, what sort of issue or topic are you passionate about, why a foundation or external grant agency should give you money to subsidize your research. And I think that I've found that there's a really a significant overlap with the college admissions process. Students really need to identify what topic or passion or academic niche they're really interested in package that for a college and show how they have the relevant background credentials they've sort of already pursued and experimented with this topic and how that will relate to what they want to do in the future. So I think there's sort of a lot of overlap and it's been a nice intersection for me with my background working in the college admissions process. So college admissions seems to have evolved quite a bit over the years, especially post-pandemic. So can you discuss some of these changes as well as the unique challenges students applying in 2023 and beyond face? Sure. So there are very recent changes that are particularly due to COVID and the pandemic. And then there are sort of changes that have occurred over a much longer time span, typically since really parents applied to college. So a lot of parents that we're working with, they went to college typically in the 90s. And that was when they got their undergraduate degrees. And, you know, so we're talking about some 30 years, three decades since between when their students are applying to college. And since that time, what you've typically seen in the general admissions landscape is students have way more access to advanced coursework. There are many students whose high schools offer an abundance of AP classes or IB classes or other college coursework or even dual enrollment programs with universities. Students have way more materials to sort of prep for AP exams. There are things now like Khan Academy and AP Classroom and all these materials. You know, the internet, they live in an internet age, so they have access to all this information. 
you've seen that students, the GPAs typically in the United States, there's around 50% of students have an A average. And there are around 4 million US high school students, about 28,000 high schools in the United States. So you've sort of seen that many students do very well academically. They have all of these advanced course offerings. That's very common for students to have a very rigorous course schedule to do well in it. And also with the increase in test prep, you know, even services like ours and the rest of our company, besides the college advising wing, students really have access to the resources to do very well in standardized testing in a lot of cases. As I said, there's Khan Academy. There's tons of free resources. You don't even have to work with a tutoring company or a tutor. You can get your hands on you know, some 75 past ACT exams online now. You can get your hands on tons of SATs. So that really has made it much more available for students to do really well on a lot of these sort of metric factors, right? Their test scores, their course rigor, their GPA. And it's caused a lot of students, you know, if you got a 1400 SAT and you had an A and a few APs back in the 90s, you're a very impressive student. But nowadays, that student is not nearly as impressive and doesn't stand out nearly as much in admissions. And their candidacy will tend to be a little bit, you know, for more of a lower school. Maybe that's not as prestigious as what the parents were expecting. So that's sort of the longer haul landscape. We've also generally seen that there's been a shift in college admissions in general, where colleges really prefer students who have very focused narratives. More recently, due to the pandemic, we've seen that there's been an increase in applications by about a million more applications, around a 20-25% increase since 2019. And that's been driven largely in part to new test optional policies, where the colleges are not requiring those students to submit their SAT and ACT scores. They can if they elect to. And what that's done is it's allowed a lot more students to apply to colleges without needing test scores, which was a traditional barrier in a lot of cases to many students. That increase has been disproportionately driven by students who come from more diverse backgrounds, lower SES, submitting fee waivers for the applications, underrepresented minorities, and students for whom the test really presented a more traditional barrier to applying to competitive colleges. And so a lot of students find themselves in a very unique landscape where there are so many more applications, particularly at the top 100 or top 50 colleges. And students who also particularly don't belong to some of those classes, maybe they're not underrepresented minorities, they're not submitting a common app fee waiver. They are competing against students where there's a real institutional priority around adding diversity to the class, which is certainly great. But it has made things quite a bit more competitive in just the last few years. That's a lot of information there. So let's go back. I want to ask you, in terms of strategy, do you have opinion in terms of the test optional thing? Do they even do the SAT anymore? Yes. So the SAT is still alive and well. And it's still taken by the majority of students in the United States. The ACT tends to be more popular sort of where you are in the Midwest. The coasts have always tended to gravitate more towards the SAT. In terms of strategy there with submitting test scores, it's important for people to understand that any component that's optional, you would want to volunteer to the college provided that it will help your candidacy, right? And so Mm -hmm. a lot of things are optional. I always say like getting a great GPA, you don't have to get a great GPA. It is technically optional. You have to submit your transcripts. So a lot of things are essentially elective. 
you want to figure out, is my test score ultimately going to be an asset to my application or is it going to be a liability to my application? And if you find yourself... So the, the general conventional wisdom is if your test score falls typically in the 50th percentile or higher of the school's range, even better would be 75th percentile of their accepted students. If you're in the higher end of their test score range, then it will be an asset to your application. If you are more in the 25th percentile of their accepted student scores or lower, then it will be a liability to your application. So we always suggest that students try to add that extra component to their applications because if they can do very well, it will help them. It will be an extra piece of fodder for their admissions case versus a student who's not submitting a score. But by the same token, you don't want to have a student who really underperforms and is well below a school's range and they elect to submit something that will not help their candidacy, but in fact will damage their candidacy. Okay, that's helpful. Can you speak a bit to the difference between so-called hard factors or metrics in admissions versus soft factors, such as a student's resume and extracurriculars? Sure. So to my point earlier about just the changing landscape and how it's gotten much more competitive, what that has done is you've seen many more students who have an abundance of these sort of quote-unquote metric factors. So your GPA, your number of advanced courses, your test scores, things that are quantifiable measures of a student's candidacy. And that is what a lot of students and parents tend to spend a lot of attention on. And I think that has to do with several factors. One is they're easy to talk about. It's like they're just numbers. Everybody understands numbers. You know, you can understand if the SAT is out of 1600 and you get a 980, that's not that great of a score. Probably if you get a 1580, it's pretty close to a perfect score. You've done well, you should stand out, you know, a little bit in the process. And so these things are easy to sort of understand. But with the sort of quantity of students who also have all of those great metrics and also have an A average and take really hard classes and have good test scores, especially now in the test optional landscape where you kind of, there's a self-reporting bias where you only get the best, the students submitting the best scores. Otherwise, they elect to go test optional. So it's pushed the score ranges even higher. And with that quantity of students who have a lot of those metrics, high GPA, high course rigor, high test scores, admissions officers really need to push to other factors to really separate applicants. There needed to be more variables that they were looking at to say, okay, well, this is getting the job done because there's so many students, we can't just have a cutoff of GPA because that wouldn't kind of get us to our enrollment goals. And that's really where these soft factors come in, like resume and what a student's sort of quote-unquote admission story is. So what admissions officers really are ideally trying to identify is a student who has a resume that will support some focus theme and some academic interest, typically. And they're basically showing early promise beyond just, you know, the best kind of example would be if you're a student and you're interested in, you know, studying engineering, it certainly would be great if you took AP Calculus BC and you have good grades and you took some AP Science classes and you have good grades in those and your STEM scores on the ACT are very good. That's great. And that's predictive up until a certain point. But it would be even better if you had an engineering internship or if you did science research on engineering or if you enrolled in a competitive engineering program over the summer. 
it would help to really add on top of your candidacy and say, this is a student really passionate about this field and coming to our college interested in this already. And it really adds a lot more predictive value to saying this is a student who could do very well in this field beyond just sort of their metrics. Yeah. So the well-rounded student isn't that powerful anymore. No. So a lot of families still talk very much about well-roundedness. It's the student who does some community service. They play the violin or the piano. They do some sports. And, you know, they're part of an array of clubs in high school with no particular theme. And that student did have their day at one point in admissions many, many decades ago. Colleges were looking for a student who was more than just inside of the four walls of the classroom and test scores. But I think that sort of became too easy to accomplish, right? It's not as difficult to be a jack of all trades as it is to be a master of one, right? Mm -hmm. Any student can join a bunch of clubs. They can play the violin. Now, certainly if they are a world-class talent at the violin or they're in Carnegie Hall, that's different, right? Just like if you can play a sport, but if you're a recruited athlete, you're in a different bucket, right? Right. Um, Uh You're excellent at it. But most students aren't extremely talented musicians. When they do community service, they're not raising $5 million. That would be a huge, enormous thing. But, you know, they just kind of do these things. And it's more of a quantity versus sort of a quality or a depth. And they don't have the focus to them. So admissions officers really over the years have tried to push more in this direction of students who do assemble a narrative of activities that have something to do with each other and really have something to do with what the student's going to be ultimately pursuing. And that is really how you can identify a genuine passion and understand that a student, again, is going to be prepared to study that field in college. You're going to put your money typically more on the student who's already started working in a field for a few years ahead of going to college versus the student who they're just going to college to study something for the first time. Yeah. I'm a therapist and I see lots of parents and teens. And I see a lot of parents who are putting all this pressure on their teens to do volunteer hours for college. So does that Mm -hmm. make any difference at all? So we like to talk about with community service, there's more kind of generic community service or sort of community service for its own sake versus more calibrated community service. So if you're a student who is, let's say you're interested in computer science or coding, this sort of your academic niche or narrative, it's what you really enjoy. If you spend some time working with middle schoolers or at your local library to teach them some coding on the weekends for a few hours, that typically will be way better and way more calibrated than a student who just kind of spends some time in a soup kitchen or does like the midnight run very popular in New York City, things that a lot of students are doing. So it won't be very unique and it's not very calibrated, right? And what's the point there of the calibration? What is an admissions officer really looking for? They're looking for how genuine the service actually is. So a student who also is interested in coding and I could see in their other activities, and then I could see that they brought that to a service perspective, I'm going to tend to believe it's more genuine, right? I often use the term from sociology, conspicuous compassion, right? And conspicuous compassion is when you're sort of virtue signaling. You're right. I'm a good person. I help other people. And a lot of students fall into that trap. They talk about it in their essays, you know, how much community service they do. And I think admissions officers, just like they are very skeptical about a student saying they want to be a doctor just because maybe they've seen doctors on television shows and movies, but they haven't done anything. 
to actually substantiate that interest. They're also very skeptical when students do community service as to what the motives are for them doing community service. Is it just because their parents and the guidance counselor in school told them they need to do it for college? So you really want to look at ways that you can really use your other gifts, your other talents, abilities, interests, and provide service within those more particular angles. It will come across a lot more genuine in a lot of cases. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. So given that colleges are looking for more focused rather than well-rounded students, how does a student go about finding their focus and unique admission story? Yeah. So this is a question that depend a little bit on how old the student is. So we come across parents who might have an 11th grader or dare I say, even they're almost on the application process and they're an early 12th grade or the summer going to 12th grade. You have some that are sort of in the middle, they're maybe 10th grade. Then you have you know a little bit more of the earlier starters who are 9th grade, some cases even 8th grade, 7th grade, late middle school. So one thing we typically want to look at is sort of how much current data do we have of a student starting later on? They probably already have built somewhat of a resume if they're in 11th grade. They already have done certain things throughout high school. They'll have joined certain clubs. They might have done a summer program or taken extra courses. And so the nice thing about that actually when students are a little bit older is you have more data that you can sort of evaluate and look for promising directions or themes. And that is definitely very helpful. Those students have less time to build a narrative from that point going forward. But hopefully, they sort of done some things that you can see a narrative and abstract it away from what they've actually already done to this point. For students who are starting a little bit earlier, one of the great advantages is they have a lot more time. They can build something more from scratch or maybe the very kind of ground floor. They've done a little bit in an area and they really have a lot more time to sort of build on top of it. Just one of the drawbacks is you don't have as much data to go off of. You don't know like, you know, how much they like certain clubs in school, how they sort of gravitate to certain opportunities if they haven't sort of explored them yet. So it will depend a little bit, you know, based on the time. Um, typically, one of the things we like to look, certainly we'll look at the student's resume first. That's a big indicator, particularly if there's promising things in their resume that they've already put in place. We'll look at the student's academics. So if there are subjects in which they've really excelled or which they express a sort of conscious desire for, they really love certain subjects and that has to be substantiated by their actual grades, then those could be promising areas. We'll ask students if they've had any projects in certain classes where they were really, really excited about those projects and to do them and to go above and beyond. Because that's what admissions officers are looking for. They're not looking for you to just have done the homework assignment or just what was required of you. But, oh, is there some project where you really decided to go outside of the classroom and look up extra things and go to the library and take out extra books? Like, it really got you excited to go above and beyond. And, you know, if we don't have too much from the academics or the resume, you know, we'll often give our own students a lot of different questions that just talk about how do you spend your free time? That's really huge. Just auditing the students' leisure time. Like, what are they gravitating to? What are they looking up? Are they watching YouTube videos on a subject? They listen to podcasts you know, on a certain subject. And they might be tinkering around. We have students who you know, built their own computers. They build little trinkets. They love to write. And they're really good writers. And all sorts of really interesting things they do that 
a lot of the students themselves and even parents just totally overlook that the student is sort of has this informal hobby because it seems a little too informal. It doesn't have like a fancy club name. It doesn't seem like it's something you can easily package for a college application. But in many cases, that's actually what admissions officers are looking for. They're looking for that intellectual curiosity, that intrinsic drive and passion to do it when you don't have anybody looking over you or there's no teacher telling you you have to do it. What do you do in those times? And that really provides excellent fodder. So we love to ask kids, you know, how do you spend your free time? What are your interests, your hobbies, even traits? Are you the student who loves organizing your friend group over the weekend? Are you like the logistics person and the leader for the group, right? And we really try to audit all these different characteristics and ways that students spend their time. Yeah. Well, back in the day, it seems like the students didn't really have to know exactly what their major is and that they had kind of a couple years to figure it out. Mm -hmm. So what advice would you have for parents who have teens that are really just generalists? Their students aren't really that excited about anything, that they're just evenly interested in things. Sure. So this is a common refrain from a lot of parents. We tend to hear that students just kind of, you know, they're interested in STEM, they're interested in humanities, and it's just kind of an even balance. I would say first, we sort of have to actually test that because a lot of times it seems like it's the case, but they're not looking carefully enough. They might do equally well in school but then you see that they're gravitating outside of the classroom to something a little bit more than the other. And it's rare where it's a perfect balance or there's absolutely nothing that stands out a little bit more than something else. I often say that sort of resume building and story building is it's probabilistic, it's not deterministic, right? Which means if something sticks out a little bit more by like 15% more than something else, it's a better avenue because at least they're gravitating to a little bit more than something else, right? So I would sort of probably question that sort of hypothesis in a lot of cases. I don't think it actually is usually well supported. I think that that's what parents think, but they haven't really very carefully thought through all the nuances or really audited all the students' time. If a student, you know, they are pretty even on a bunch of things, you are still going to be very well advantaged in the admissions process by telling them a more focused story regardless, right? And one of the analogies that I like to use is it's, you know, you're filming a movie, you have a bunch of messy, unedited film footage, right? I don't know how many hours it is, you might have seven hours of unedited film footage that gets compressed down to 90 minutes with a minute and a half trailer, right? And for an admissions officer, you have to condense it down to like an eight minute trailer, because that's about how long you get for them to read your application. If you want to throw a bunch of different things and say, I'm good at this, I'm good at that, I'm good at that, and a bunch of different clubs, and you talk about one club in this essay, and one club in this essay, and you're sure it just is very messy. And it's very difficult for an admissions officer to understand or identify any theme. And if you've read a bunch of applications, it can always be frustrating to not understand what the student's background is, what's the story. Why are they applying to my school? And why do they want to study what they're putting in the application? I don't understand because it's not that neat kind of trailer that's edited and you've sort of spliced it down. So even if students on the back end think that they have a very broad array of interest, it still will make more sense to tell a more focused story really based on what the data support. And the resume, if they have a little bit more towards one direction, try to just present that main direction because it's a little bit stronger and you can see it on paper. 
No, that's a great metaphor. Yeah. Like they have eight minutes, so they don't want to spend any time really trying to figure this kid out. No, they don't want to be Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) No, that's so good. And it also doesn't mean we're talking about the admissions process. It might be that they get into school and they change their mind of the direction they want to go in. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And on that point, I'll quickly chime in because I think that is a point that a lot of parents like to talk about students for most areas, especially if they're going into the main college of arts and sciences, had a lot of flexibility to change their major later on. And they're often not declaring their major until they're, uh, I'm thinking in high school, um, typically their <laughs> sophomore or junior year of college. If you're going to be doing something like, you know, if the school has a direct admit business program or if they have an engineering school, that tends to be more direct admission. So it might be a little bit less flexible to transfer in later on. But even in some cases, you can transfer into a professional school later on as well. So there's a lot of flexibility to change it later on. But tell them a focus story while you're applying so that they can make sense of your application. And on the back end, you can sort of sort through some of the messiness a little bit more when you actually get to college. Oh, that's great advice. So once a student has an idea of their passions, how should they begin pursuing them in terms of activities or the like? We might have talked about that. Is there anything else you would want to add? Yeah. So we've kind of talked about the discovery process. How do you sort of identify some of these directions? And then executionally, so that's sort of what we call a story building, right? It's like identifying what is that macro in the cloud sort of story and high level trajectory. But then you sort of have to drop down to reality and say, well, how can I substantiate this narrative? How can I actually provide evidence, things that are on paper? And that's where you're going to come across different activity types. So joining clubs in high school or leading clubs in high school, you have internships in different fields, you have summer programs or summer courses, you have science research opportunities that you can partake in. Many high schools nowadays have science research programs in the actual high school and will help to sort of facilitate you know, that matching to a mentor and finding a university mentor to conduct an original science research project. So it tends to take on a very multifaceted attack. Clubs are usually a very easy structured way for students to tackle their admissions narrative. Find which clubs at your high school are relevant to your interests. If you're interested in business, is there a business club? Is there a finance club? Is there an entrepreneurship club? If there isn't, maybe you even consider starting one and being the founder of that club at your school and finding friends who are similarly interested in that area so they can also help you so you're not doing it all by yourself, which is also not usually great. We usually encourage students to collaborate and work with others. It makes it easier and it's the kind of skills that colleges typically want to see. They can enroll in summer programs. So there's a lot of summer programs. You do have to know which summer programs are more valued and have those types of experiences that are very valuable versus which ones are sort of more what we call just pay-for-play schemes where they're very expensive programs. But as long as you pay the very big fee, they're not very competitive. They don't ask too many questions, but a college admissions officer is not going to be too impressed by what they do in that summer program. And there's a variety of things. We've had students who are interested in theater and they reach out to you know dramaturgists and get a theater internship even podcasts like this one. We've had students, we had a student who was interested in climate change and she was on a podcast about climate change and doing research for them. And so it's really very varied um, how you tackle this across a wide variety of activity types. What's important is that you are tackling and putting those 
building blocks in place to support the narrative that you're trying to actually build. Great. Good ideas. From what age is it ideal for students and parents to start thinking about these topics and where a child's passions and abilities lie? Sure. So I think I would tend to say as early as possible, just paying attention, right? It doesn't have to be for college admissions. It doesn't have to be, you know, so you can get into a certain school or you're going to study this very particular major. And I think a lot of that can feel very overwhelming. I think you have to also take into account, as I said earlier, certainly things can evolve and change. And by getting data, you'll be able to iterate through the data by actually pushing some buttons on some things and saying, do I really like this from a younger age? Or how do they respond to it? But I think really as early as possible, I mean, students typically, and you know, in psychology, right, personality is a very stable trait in most cases. We talk about the marshmallow experiments, which have some flaws to them, but there are very early indicators of a lot of behaviors or inclinations that you can see very early on and that are very stable across the lifespan, right? So I think parents just knowing who their kids are, are they more introverted? Are they more extroverted? Are they highly conscientious? Are they more natural leaders? How do they work? Do they thrive well in structure? Do they thrive well with less structure? Are they more entrepreneurial and innovative? And I think a lot of these things you can see, you know, very, very early on if you're looking carefully enough. And that sort of is the big asterisk. Are you looking carefully enough? And I remember talking with a family. I was talking about some of these traits and just who is this student? And they were talking about how on all of the students' report cards going back to kindergarten, all the teachers had all made the same comments on the student about even just how nice they were and how compassionate and kind they were to other students. And that was, you know, they might have been in 10th grade, but it was like going back to like kindergarten. And I think parents can, as early as possible, you can just start figuring out who is my child. And then later on, I think if you're starting to actually try to connect that to much more concrete activities and you're getting closer to the high school, Probably later middle school is when you can really start to have them, you know, maybe start to pursue some things that, you know, I think they're a little bit more interested in coding, right? They sort of have seen this and they might like it a little bit, you know, maybe they take like a informal Coursera course online in coding and see if they like it, right? You can do that in seventh or eighth grade. It's not a huge deal or commitment. And I think it's a very important point that time is an extremely valuable asset. Many students and families wish they could go back in time and then they had more time to think about these things. And I often think that progress is simply time plus attention or like information. If you have the right information and then you have a lot of time, it's sort of like investing. It's like if you have a little bit of money, but you have a lot of time for it to grow and to compound, time is extremely powerful. So I think as early as possible and maybe a little bit more with a college viewpoint, maybe starting later middle school to early high school. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. My question is, what is the strategy when you're applying to colleges? Like if you say early decision or just leave it open. And then I think there's another decision you can make. Can you talk about that? Sure. So there are actually a ton of different decision plans and it gets a little bit convoluted. But I'll sort of boil it down into a few of the core decision plans. Um, and then there's a lot of different sub-varieties, particularly for very competitive schools. So the three primary decision plans, the ones that most students and families will encounter are 
early decision. So early decision is when you obviously are applying early and you are making a decision of committing to that college. So if they accept you, you have to go. Now, it's not a legally binding agreement, but you don't usually want to back out if they've accepted you under an ED plan. It can hurt your high school. It can end up getting your high school on a blacklist at that college. They can sometimes communicate that to other colleges. So usually that's you're making a decision. If they accept you, you have to go. Early action still has the early component to it. So you're still applying earlier ahead of the regular deadlines. So those early decision and early action typically are around November 1st at most colleges. Early action is you are, let's just sort of say you're acting early. So you're choosing to apply early. So you're going to be in one of the earlier groups of applicants that they're evaluating. But you're not saying I am making a binding commitment to this school that if you accept me, I am definitely going. And then you have regular decision. And regular decision is the latest deadline. It usually tends to be towards January 1st. For some schools, it might be a little bit later in January, the 8th, the 15th, etc. And for that, you are neither applying early, nor are you making any sort of binding commitment. And I think for many parents, again, having gone through this process many decades ago, that sounds typically awesome, right? It's like you get more time, you don't have to commit. Even, you know, I think a lot of parents love the early action plans because you get your application in first, you'll hear back a little bit sooner, you sort of get it done with, but you don't have to make any commitments, right? Nobody's asking you to sign anything. You can sort of keep all your options open. The problem, unfortunately, over time is when you get way more applicants applying to colleges and we've seen a substantial increase in international applicants and then students even in the US. And I talked about how you have a million more applications and even the number of applicants is up substantially since 2019. When you get all of these students who can now so easily apply to so many colleges, now there's a common application. It's just online. You could literally just keep hitting the submit button. You might need to change your essays a little bit. You just keep hitting submit. That wasn't the way that it was for a lot of parents where they had to go to the post office, mail their application. There was a different application for this school. You had to get stamps. Even just that was a barrier to entry to apply to a bunch of colleges because it was a headache. And now students submit so many applications to so many colleges that colleges have had to increasingly protect their own interests and say, who's actually coming to our school and who doesn't actually want to come to our school, but it's just kind of using us as a target or a safety or whatnot. And that's what we refer to as yield. It's the percentage of students who are accepted that choose to actually enroll in the school. And colleges care a lot about that yield number. So you've seen this big push towards early decision, where now even schools not only have one early decision plan, but they even have a second early decision plan, where you can apply under one of two different early decision plans. And that might be the college accepting 75 or 80% of its students under those two early decision plans. If they have one plan, they might be taking 40 or 50% of the incoming class under the early decision plan. So it tends to be something that a lot of students and families approach the wrong way, where they're saying, I don't want to commit. I will have all these options in the spring to choose from. And it's not usually going to end up that way. If you don't commit, the colleges are going to deprioritize you very significantly. And your odds of admission are going to be substantially lower than if you had done early decision if the school offers that in a lot of cases. So it is a huge strategic advantage to do early decision if you're applying to schools that 
afford you that option. That's really, really helpful for me to think through that. That's great. And it's interesting because in this situation, it was the girl who was super clear about the early decision. She probably understood more than the parents. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, I always say to our students, you're going to have to commit by May 1st anyway. So if you commit by November 1st, it's not that big of a time gap, right? So you have to understand you may be leaving a lot on the table in terms of your acceptances or getting into those top schools that you want to go to by just simply trying to buy yourself a few more months of time. And I'm a big proponent that you don't need more time to make good decisions. You need more information to make good decisions. So if you do your due diligence and your research, you can do it earlier on so that you're in a better position to apply earlier on and give yourself in some cases, you know, a five, six X times multiple on your odds of admission by being in the early decision pool versus being in the regular decision pool. And that ED Mm. pool could be only a few thousand applicants, or you could be in the regular decision pool with 50,000 applicants. Which one would you prefer to be in? (laughs) Mm. Mm, That's so helpful. All right. So if there are moms listening who are feeling like, oh my gosh, this is so much, how can you encourage them? Sure. So I think if you're starting earlier on, you have a lot of time to sort of think about these things carefully. You know, like I said, on the early decision, just do your homework on the schools, go see them earlier on. So you're in a good position to make a decision by November 1st. If you've heard, you know, what I've talked about on the resume building front and the story building front, I think parents can just look a little bit more carefully at some of their students' traits, their abilities, just their inclinations and propensities, how they interact with people, what they kind of gravitate to. They're up in their room. I don't know. What are they doing up in their room? Are they just playing video games or... Who knows? They might be a video game designer. They're video game programs as well. But you know, I don't know. Are they watching YouTube videos about something that's interesting or a podcast? It's a great way of engaging a student and meeting them. You know, sort of halfway at what their passions are, how they're spending their time, and you sort of at least understand what you're trying to do in the macro, which is really huge because a lot of people just do not have the correct information. And I say what they're doing is they're optimizing a strategy that is essentially a losing strategy for college admissions. The game that they think they are playing is not the game that is actually the the real game. It's not if they think that by building more well-roundedness or by doing an extra 20 hours of generic community service, they think what a college is looking for, or by joining that eighth club at high school that doesn't fit into any theme. If they think that's going to help them, it's not. And so I think it's just really valuable to just understand some of these main points. And they can really trickle down to much better decision making. And even when students don't even want to be doing something that sort of the parent thinks will work well for admissions, but it doesn't work well for admissions, and the student doesn't want to do it, it's like the worst possible scenario. (laughs) And the good news that we like to tell a lot of our students and parents to kind of get them excited is... The great, great news is the answer to what you should do for college admissions is you should do what you're passionate about and good in. Like that's what you should do. And that will serve you in the present. Like you'll be more excited to do those things versus like eating your vegetables. You'll have a bigger (laughs) heads up on your future career path because you'll start getting actually some data. You know, if you graduate when you're 22 and that's your first experience in a field or a career path, Think about how much better off you could have been if you could have done an internship when you were 16. You would have had six more years, basically, where you could have found that out earlier on. So I think it's a really exciting thing to say. You know, I can think about a student that 
I met at one point and she liked doing makeup for her friends. It's like, well, here's the good news. You seem to be really good at doing makeup for your friends. You're really passionate. You love doing it. You're good at it because everybody's coming to you. How about you just start charging them a little something and like start creating a business around this a little bit, right? And that would be really interesting to admissions officers. They would love that. And the student is just, yeah, but like, which sport can I play? And it's like, but that's not going to help you. And you don't want to do it. How about you just focus on the makeup and like, just start building it a little bit more substantially. So I think a lot of this information plus time can really help people. And I think the really exciting thing about this is admission should be viewed as a byproduct of a student pursuing their passions and their unique abilities and gifts and characteristics. It should not in and of itself be the end goal. And when a lot of people treat it as only the end goal, it also backfires in a lot of ways because admissions officers can also tell who's really has a genuine interest or passion and they can corroborate it in a lot of ways with what other people say about you, your recommenders, your teachers, your guidance counselor, when they write you a letter, they can see what you've done in your resume and they can also sort of suss out who's sort of the real deal. And that's really what they're interested in and passionate about versus who's just sort of saying it, you know, they want to go into finance because they saw a movie about Wall Street or they want to be a doctor <laughs> because, you know, they saw an episode about Grey's Anatomy, as we always say. No, this is great. So if a parent has a question or they want to contact you, where can they go? Sure. So we are the Great Minds Advising team. It's a little bit complicated. Our advising branch of the company is called Great Minds Advising. We will be having a separate website coming up in the not-too-distant future. For now, you can reach us through our main umbrella company, which is called Westchester Prep. And that is at westchesterprep.com. We have our advising page and our advising branch on the website. If you click under College Advising, you can shoot us a note if you have any questions or interested, or even just interested in getting on our advising newsletter and just getting some free information about the process as well. Well, that sounds great. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. It was great chatting with you. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my award-winning best-selling books, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, and my newest release book, Dial Up the Dream, Making Your Daughter's Journey to Adulthood the Best for Both of You. You can find both of these books wherever books are sold. And you can find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com. And that has two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.